Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. For regular listeners, please note we now come out on a Tuesday rather than a Monday. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Oliver Ralph, the deputy head of the Lex column, and Harriet Agnew, our city correspondent. Today we'll be talking about the agenda at Davos as the World Economic Forum gathers in the Swiss ski resort. We'll also be talking about the US banks and what lies ahead in terms of legal charges. And finally, to the City of London and why the city is so bad at hiring top women. The first topic, though, is Davos, the annual jamboree in the Swiss ski resort of Davos, where the great and the good of finance, economics and many other spheres gather for this annual pilgrimage and debating fest. Martin Arnold, our banking editor, is about to set off there. So, Martin, what are you expecting? Who'll be there? Who won't be there? And what will they all be talking about? Just to deal with those who aren't there this year, BNP Paribas, the biggest French bank, is taking a pass this year after they got fined nearly $9 billion. And Mario Draghi, the head of the European Central Bank, won't be there this year because he'll be busy on Thursday. He's expected to announce a massive quantitative easing programme to boost the Eurozone economy. But those that will be there include the likes of Anshu Jain, Deutsche Bank's co-chief executive Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive of HSBC... Andre Estevez, BTG Pactual in Brazil's chief executive, and Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America, who will all be debating on, I guess, the most banking-focused panel, which is they're debating the question, how are regulatory changes, technological and business model innovation reshaping the global banking landscape? That's on Wednesday. That's the most banking-focused of them all, but there's other similar sort of panels. There's how are major markets responding to the end of quantity easing. Anna Patricia Botin, the new chairman of Banco Santander, Gary Cohen, COO of Goldman Sachs, and Larry Summers will be debating that. Our own Martin Wolf from the FT will be um, looking into the question of have post-financial crisis reforms made the system sufficiently resilient. And on his panel debating that's the chairman of Credit Suisse, Urs Rona, along with Andre Enria, the uh, chairman of the European Banking Authority, and Anat Admati, who is Professor of Finance and Economics at Stanford Graduate School of Business. There's a huge range of economics forums, but I guess the most eye-catching one will be on Friday, which is the day after quantitative easing, where we've got our own Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, along with Wolfgang Schaubler, Finance Minister of Germany, and Luis de Guindos, Spain's Economic Minister who will be debating along with Ignacio Visco, the governor of the Central Bank of Italy, and George Soros, 
the famous hedge fund investor, they'll be looking at the question of what fiscal and monetary options will strengthen the European Union while delivering employment growth. So employment, Europe's woes, banking regulation reform, but also one other theme just to pick out is technology, because there's a lot of interest, particularly in the financial sector, in, in technology and the digitization wave. And on Friday, there's a fascinating panel called From Bucks to Bitcoins, with a group of people discussing how the mainstreaming of digital finance is disrupting financial services and transforming consumer behavior. Reed Hoffman, the uh, entrepreneur, Gottfried Liebrandt, chief executive officer of SWIFT in Belgium, and Alexander Lukis from the UK's Monetize one of these fintech startups that's disrupting the big banks. They'll all be debating that. And might be worth also listening into another session in Davos, which is a conversation with Jack Ma, founder and executive chairman of Alibaba Group, on leadership, entrepreneurship and the future of commerce. Any comments he makes about financial technology as, you know, they've launched Alipay, this hugely successful internet bank in China would be very fascinating. So lots to look forward to in the next few days. Thanks for that, Martin. We should move on to our second topic. US banks. Last week, JP Morgan put out some results for its fourth quarter in amongst some, I guess, a mixed set of results in many ways. There was something that surprised people in terms of the quantity and scope of the legal provisions that the bank had set aside. Oliver, from the perch of the Lex column, you've been observing the performance of JP for many quarters now. What's going on and to what extent is what we saw at JP last week going to set the tone for the other US banks? Well, to quite a big degree, really. As I said, the standout thing for JP Morgan was a legal charge, about a billion dollars worth, which wasn't entirely expected. Much of that is expected to cover Forex investigations. But there could be other things in there that there wasn't too much detail on what exactly that will be used for. But overall, the results weren't too inspiring. JP Morgan's numbers came in below forecasts, earnings per share of $1.20 against $1.30 that was expected. And that kind of set the tone for other banks, which also came in below expectations. And it was a fairly sort of downbeat set of numbers from all the banks, really. And what about for the European banks? Is there any kind of read across there, do you think? The read across such as there is will be in the investment banking part of the business. One of the reasons that the US banks didn't do so well was a poor quarter in fixed income trading. And all of them said this, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, all their competitors all complained that it was very tough. So clearly those European banks with big fixed income businesses, Deutsche Bank particularly, also Barclays and uh, Credit Suisse, they will all probably be suffering in the same way, albeit perhaps to a lesser extent, given that the markets in Europe are slightly different in the, the lead up to quantitative easing. But it was a very volatile quarter and the banks didn't deal well with that. That said, they also complain when the quarters are not volatile enough. So you wonder if this is the kind of business where they can ever do really well. And of course, for the European banks, they're also operating in a domestic market in which they're kind of pretty stiff headwinds at yes. the moment. So uh, that's not that encouraging, I guess, for those results as they're coming forward. One other final point I wanted to ask you about JP Morgan. It saw really a return to form in terms of the acerbic tone of the boss, uh, Jamie Dimon, in terms of his typically outspoken words of criticism for regulators and policymakers generally. He toned that down for a few, or almost a couple of years, really, but he's as acerbic as ever now. Yes, he, he was certainly on, on great form, presenting the results, taking pot shots in all kinds of directions, certainly in the direction of the regulators. He, he was saying these days he has to deal with five or six regulators, not one or two. And he was also in quite feisty form responding to the idea that um, 
JP Morgan could be split up. This is an idea that's been put forward by a lot of people most recently. Uh, and this uh, Goldman Sachs suggested there could be upside from JP Morgan up. At least upside for them, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Very possibly. Jamie Dimon was saying that uh, banks like eggs, you can't unscramble them. And he was talking about these regulators being un-American, the number of regulators he has to deal with. And, and also the idea that if JP Morgan is broken up, then the next JP Morgan could come from Asia. And is that really what the Americans would like to see? So certainly on good form and, and nice and colourful, but perhaps this was just trying to hide the poor numbers that were underlying it. He, he sort of, it's a nice way to distract attention with some colourful language, but underneath it, there weren't a great set of numbers. Perhaps that's part of it. I suspect maybe part of it also is his brush with mortality. Obviously, uh, it seems to have come back pretty healthy from a cancer scare. And it does seem to have recovered quite nicely. Yeah, it seems maybe all the more determined to become the, uh, the spokesman for the industry against the forces of policymakers. Anyway, thanks for that, Oliver. Let's move on to our third topic. Over the weekend, my colleague Harriet Agnew and I put out a big study in the Weekend magazine about the state of senior women in the City of London, the fairly woeful numbers that are evident across the city. Harriet is here to talk about that. So, Harriet, as I was saying, part of our study was a poll that we conducted among up to 35 of the city's biggest employers. Maybe you could remind listeners what we found. Well, we found that fewer than one in five senior people in the city are women. That's right across the board. That's an average of all these companies. How does it fare? Is is it a kind of a mixed bag across different sectors? Well, I think among the worst are the investment banks. And we also noticed a real reticence from some companies, notably the hedge funds and asset managers, to actually provide the data. Yeah, that's quite a discouraging. Four or five of the companies that we went to either said they didn't measure the data or they wouldn't disclose it, which hardly uh, bodes well for addressing what seems to be a big issue in terms of imbalance. I mean, one of the issues we addressed in our magazine piece was why this matters. What do you think are the key reasons for that? Why should anybody care? Well, I think there's an increasing realisation that diversity isn't just a a sort of corporate social responsibility thing, but it's actually makes good business sense. And much as you'd want to diversify the stocks in your portfolio, you should want to diversify the people in your workforce. Yeah, I mean, I think that came across a lot in, in terms of the people we spoke to. And that does, to be fair to a lot of the company, a lot of the employers, there seems to be a genuine willingness and keenness to address this issue. Yeah, I think that's correct. It's not for um, lack of trying. And you'll see that reflected in the sort of graduate hires that a lot of these firms make, where there's a sort of 50-50 split between men and women. But I think the difficulties arise during the 30 to 40 age period, which is a time when a lot of women are taking time off work to have children. And that's despite really a lot of the kind of fairly forward thinking policies that some of these employers have, partly, I suppose, self-serving, you know, nurseries in-house and all that kind of stuff and and fairly generous maternity packages and proactive maternity management and so on. Yeah, I think that's true. But there are sort of cultural issues like I think people are still reluctant to embrace flexibility of working because it's synonymous with lack of ambition. Yeah, it's seen as kind of taking a cop-out solution. So is there anything more that can be done from here? I mean, some of the women we spoke to certainly talked about more dramatic policies, didn't they? Well, yes, there was a lot of talk about quotas. And this is a pretty controversial measure. What we found was that the very senior women in their careers actually wanted to embrace quotas because they felt that age 30, they hadn't believed in them at all and they thought they'd get there on their own merit. But actually 20 years on, not enough had changed. So they believe that quotas could be a good first step to get to a, a stage where we don't need quotas. Yeah, so it's something that you could have with a sunset clause five or 10 years down the 
Exactly. Um, I think there's still a huge amount of reticence amongst the younger generation of women about quotas. I think they feel like if there are quotas and you get to a top position, you face this sort of questioning from yourself and from your colleagues as to whether you got there by merit or by quota. Well, we'll leave it there. But remember, you can read all about that full survey that we did on sexism in the city on the FT website, ft.com. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Oliver and Harriet for their contributions. And also thank you for listening. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.